This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 1 of Grim Tales by Edith Nesbitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Grim Tales by Edith Nesbitt. Chapter 1 The Ebony Frame. To be rich is a luxurious sensation, the more so when you have plumbed the depths of hard upness as a Fleet Street hack a picker-up of unconsidered pars, a reporter, an unappreciated journalist. All callings utterly inconsistent with one's family feeling and one's direct descent from the Dukes of Picardy. When my aunt Dorcas died and left me seven hundred a year and a furnished house in Chelsea, I felt that life had nothing left to offer except immediate possession of the legacy. Even Mildred Mayhew, whom I had hitherto regarded as my life's light, became less luminous. I was not engaged to Mildred, but I lodged with her mother, and I sang duets with Mildred, and gave her gloves when it would run to it, which was seldom. She was a dear, good girl, and I meant to marry her some day. It is very nice to feel that a good little woman is thinking of you. It helps you in your work, and it is pleasant to know she will say yes when you say, will you? But, as I say, my legacy almost put Mildred out of my head, especially as she was staying with friends in the country just then. Before the first gloss was off my new morning, I was seated in my aunt's own armchair, in front of the fire in the dining-room of my own house my own house. It was grand, but rather lonely. I did think of Mildred just then. The room was comfortably furnished with oak and leather. On the walls hung a few fairly good oil paintings, but the space above the mantelpiece was disfigured by an exceedingly bad print, the trial of Lord William Russell, framed in a dark frame. I got up to look at it. I had visited my aunt with dutiful regularity, but I never remembered seeing this frame before. It was not intended for a print, but for an oil painting. It was of fine ebony, beautifully and curiously carved. I looked at it with growing interest, and when my aunt's housemaid—I had retained her modest staff of servants—came in with the lamp, I asked her how long the print had been there. 
"'Mistress only bought it two days afore she was took ill,' she said. "'But the frame? She didn't want to buy a new one, so she got this out of the attic. There's lots of curious old things there, sir. Had my aunt had this frame long?' "'Oh, yes, sir. It come long afore I did, and I've been here seven years come Christmas. There was a picture in it. That's upstairs, too. But it's that black and ugly, it might as well be a chimney-back.' I felt a desire to see this picture. What if it were some priceless old master, in which my aunt's eyes had only seen rubbish? Directly after breakfast, next morning, I paid a visit to the lumber-room. It was crammed with old furniture, enough to stock a curiosity-shop. All the house was furnished solidly in the early Victorian style, and in this room everything not in keeping with the drawing-room suite ideal was stowed away tables of papier-mâché and mother-of-pearl, straight-backed chairs with twisted feet and faded needlework cushions, fire-screens of old-world design, oak bureau with brass handles, a little work-table with its faded moth-eaten silk flutings hanging in disconsolate shreds. On these and the dust that covered them blazed the full daylight as I drew up the blinds, I promised myself a good time in re-enshrining these household gods in my parlour, and promoting the Victorian suite to the attic. But at present my business was to find the picture as black as the chimney-back, and presently, behind a heap of hideous still-life studies, I found it. Jane the housemaid identified it at once. I took it downstairs carefully, and examined it. No subject, no colour were distinguishable. There was a splodge of a darker tint in the middle, but whether it was figure, or tree, or house, no man could have told. It seemed to be painted on a very thick panel bound with leather. I decided to send it to one of those persons who pour on rotting family portraits the water of eternal youth. Mere soap and water, Mr. Besant tells us it is. But even as I did so, the thought occurred to me to try my own restorative hand at a corner of it. My bath-sponge, soap, and nail-brush vigorously applied for a few seconds showed me that there was no picture to clean. Bare oak presented itself to my persevering brush. I tried the other side, Jane watching me with indulgent interest. The same result. Then the truth dawned on me. Why was the panel so thick? I tore off the leather binding, and the panel divided and fell to the ground in a cloud of dust. There were two pictures. They had been nailed face to face. I leaned them against the wall, and the next moment I was leaning against it myself, for one of the pictures was myself, a perfect portrait, no shade of expression or turn of feature wanting. Myself, in a cavalier dress, love-locks and all. When had this been done? And how, without my knowledge? Was this some whim of my aunt's? Lord, sir, the shrill surprise of Jane at my elbow. What a lovely photo it is! Was it a fancy ball, sir? Yes, I stammered. I, I don't think I want anything more now. You can go. She went, and I turned, still with my heart beating violently, to the other picture. This was a woman of the type of beauty beloved of Burne Jones and Rossetti. Straight nose, low brows, full lips, thin hands, 
large, deep, luminous eyes. She wore a black velvet gown. It was a full-length portrait. Her arms rested on a table beside her, and her head on her hands. But her face was turned full forward, and her eyes met those of the spectator bewilderingly. On the table by her were compasses and instruments whose uses I did not know, books, a goblet, and a miscellaneous heap of papers and pens. I saw all this afterwards. I believe it was a quarter of an hour before I could turn my eyes away from hers. I have never seen any other eyes like hers. They appealed as a child's or a dog's do. They commanded as might those of an empress. Shall I sweep up the dust, sir? Curiosity had brought Jane back. I acceded. I turned from her my portrait. I kept between her and the woman in the black velvet. When I was alone again, I tore down the trial of Lord William Russell, and I put the picture of the woman in its strong ebony frame. Then I wrote to a frame-maker for a frame for my portrait. It had so long lived face to face with this beautiful witch that I had not the heart to banish it from her presence, from which it will be perceived that I am by nature a somewhat sentimental person. The new frame came home, and I hung it opposite the fireplace. An exhaustive search among my aunt's papers showed no explanation of the portrait of myself, no history of the portrait of the woman with the wonderful eyes. I only learned that all the old furniture together had come to my aunt at the death of my great-uncle, the head of the family, and I should have concluded that the resemblance was only a family one, if every one who came in had not exclaimed at the speaking likeness. I adopted Jane's fancy-ball explanation. And there, one might suppose, the matter of the portraits ended. One might suppose it, that is, if there were not evidently a good deal more written here about it. However, to me, then, the matter seemed ended. I went to see Mildred. I invited her and her mother to come and stay with me. I rather avoided glancing at the picture in the ebony frame. I could not forget, nor remember without singular emotion, the look in the eyes of that woman when mine first met them. I shrank from meeting that look again. I reorganized the house somewhat, preparing for Mildred's visit. I turned the dining-room into a drawing-room. I brought down much of the old-fashioned furniture, and, after a long day of arranging and rearranging, I sat down before the fire, and, lying back in a pleasant languor, I idly raised my eyes to the picture. I met her dark, deep, hazel eyes, and once more my gaze was held fixed, as by a strong magic, the kind of fascination that keeps one sometimes staring for whole minutes into one's own eyes in the glass. I gazed into her eyes, and felt my own dilate, pricked with a smart like the smart of tears. "'I wish,' I said, "'oh, how I wish you were a woman, and not a picture!' come down ah oh, come down i laughed at myself as i spoke but even as i laughed i held out my arms i was not sleepy i was not drunk i was as wide awake and as sober as ever was a man in this world and yet as i held out my arms i saw the eyes of the picture dilate 
her lips tremble if i were to be hanged for saying it it is true her hands moved slightly and a sort of flicker of a smile passed over her face i sprang to my feet this won't do i said still aloud firelight does play strange tricks i'll have the lamp i pulled myself together and made for the bell my hand was on it when i heard a sound behind me and turned the bell still unrung the fire had burned low and the corners of the room were deeply shadowed but surely there behind the tall worked chair was something darker than a shadow i must face this out i said or i shall never be able to face myself again i left the bell i seized the poker and battered the dull coals to a blaze then i stepped back resolutely and looked up at the picture the ebony frame was empty from the shadow of the worked chair came a silken rustle and out of the shadow the woman of the picture was coming coming towards me i hope i shall never again know a moment of terror so blank and absolute i could not have moved or spoken to save my life either all the known laws of nature were nothing or i was mad i stood trembling but i am thankful to remember i stood still while the black velvet gown swept across the hearthrug towards me next moment a hand touched me a hand soft warm and human and a low voice said you called me i am here at that touch and that voice the world seemed to give a sort of bewildering half turn i hardly know how to express it but at once it seemed not awful not even unusual for portraits to become flesh only most natural most right most unspeakably fortunate i laid my hand on hers i looked from her to my portrait i could not see it in the firelight we are not strangers i said oh no not strangers those luminous eyes were looking up into mine those red lips were near me with a passionate cry a sense of having suddenly recovered life's one great good that had seemed wholly lost i clasped her in my arms she was no ghost she was a woman the only woman in the world how long i said oh love how long since i lost you she leaned back hanging her full weight on the hands that were clasped behind my head how can i tell how long there is no time in hell she answered it was not a dream ah no there are no such dreams i wish to god there could be when in dreams do i see her eyes hear her voice feel her lips against my cheek hold her hands to my lips as i did that night the supreme night of my life at first we hardly spoke it seemed enough after long grief and pain to feel the arms of my true love round me once again it is very difficult to tell this story there are no words to express the sense of glad reunion the complete realization of every hope and dream of a life that came upon me as i sat with my hand in hers and looked into her eyes how could it have been a dream when i left her sitting in the straight-backed chair and went down to the kitchen to tell the maids i should want nothing more that i was busy and did not wish to be disturbed when i fetched wood for the fire with my own hands and bringing it in found her still sitting there 
saw the little brown head turn as i entered saw the love in her dear eyes when i threw myself at her feet and blessed the day i was born since life had given me this not a thought of mildred all the other things in my life were a dream this its one splendid reality i am wondering she said after a while when we had made such cheer each of the other as true lovers may after long parting i am wondering how much you remember of our past i remember nothing i said oh my dear lady my dear sweetheart i remember nothing but that i love you that i have loved you all my life you remember nothing really nothing only that i am yours that we have both suffered that tell me my mistress dear all that you remember explain it all to me make me understand and yet no i don't want to understand it is enough that we are together if it was a dream why have i never dreamed it again she leaned down towards me her arm lay on my neck and drew my head till it rested on her shoulder i am a ghost i suppose she said laughing softly and her laughter stirred memories which i just grasped at and just missed but you and i know better don't we i will tell you everything you have forgotten we loved each other ah no you have not forgotten that and when you came back from the war we were to be married our pictures were painted before you went away you know i was more learned than women of that day dear one when you were gone they said i was a witch they tried me they said i should be burned just because i had looked at the stars and had gained more knowledge than they they must needs bind me to a stake and let me be eaten by the fire and you far away her whole body trembled and shrank oh love what dream would have told me that my kisses would soothe even that memory the night before she went on the devil did come to me i was innocent before you know it don't you and even then my sin was for you for you because of the exceeding love i bore you the devil came and i sold my soul to eternal flame but i got a good price i got the right to come back through my picture if anyone looking at it wished for me as long as my picture stayed in its ebony frame that frame was not carved by man's hand i got the right to come back to you oh my heart's heart and another thing i won which you shall hear anon they burned me for a witch they made me suffer hell on earth those faces all crowding round the crackling wood and the smell of the smoke oh love no more no more when my mother sat that night before my picture she wept and cried come back my poor lost child and i went to her with glad leaps of heart dear she shrank from me she fled she shrieked and moaned of ghosts she had our pictures covered from sight and put again in the ebony frame she had promised me my picture should stay always there ah through all these years your face was against mine she paused but the man you loved you came home 
my picture was gone they lied to you and you married another woman but some day i knew you would walk the world again and that i should find you the other gain i asked the other gain she said slowly i gave my soul for it is this if you also will give up your hopes of heaven i can remain a woman i can move in your world i can be your wife oh my dear after all these years at last at last if i sacrifice my soul i said slowly with no thought of the imbecility of such talk in our so-called nineteenth century if i sacrifice my soul i win you why love it's a contradiction in terms you are my soul her eyes looked straight into mine whatever might happen whatever did happen whatever may happen our two souls in that moment met and became one then you choose you deliberately choose to give up your hopes of heaven for me as i gave up mine for you i decline i said to give up my hope of heaven on any terms tell me what i must do that you and i may make our heaven here as now my dear love i will tell you to-morrow she said be alone here to-morrow night twelve is ghost's time isn't it and then i will come out of the picture and never go back to it i shall live with you and die and be buried and there will be an end of me but we shall live first my heart's heart i laid my head on her knee a strange drowsiness overcame me holding her hand against my cheek i lost consciousness when i awoke the grey november dawn was glimmering ghost-like through the uncurtained window my head was pillowed on my arm which rested i raised my head quickly ah not on my lady's knee but on the needle-worked cushion of the straight-backed chair i sprang to my feet i was stiff with cold and dazed with dreams but i turned my eyes on the picture there she sat my lady my dear love i held out my arms but the passionate cry i would have uttered died on my lips she had said twelve o'clock her lightest word was my law so i only stood in front of the picture and gazed into those grey-green eyes till tears of passionate happiness filled my own oh my dear my dear how shall i pass the hours till i hold you again no thought then of my whole life's completion and consummation being a dream i staggered up to my room fell across my bed and slept heavily and dreamlessly when i awoke it was high noon mildred and her mother were coming to lunch i remembered at one shock mildred's coming and her existence now indeed the dream began with a penetrating sense of the futility of any action apart from her i gave the necessary orders for the reception of my guests when mildred and her mother came i received them with cordiality but my genial phrases all seemed to be someone else's my voice sounded like an echo my heart was otherwhere still the situation was not intolerable until the hour when afternoon tea was served in the drawing-room mildred and her mother kept the conversational pot boiling with a profusion of genteel commonplaces and i bore it 
as one can bear mild purgatories when one is in sight of heaven. I looked up at my sweetheart in the ebony frame, and I felt that anything that might happen, any irresponsible imbecility, any bathos of boredom, was nothing if, after it all, she came to me again. And yet, when Mildred, too, looked at the portrait and said, "'What a fine lady! One of your flames, Mr. Devine!' I had a sickening sense of impotent irritation, which became absolute torture when Mildred, how could I ever have admired that chocolate-box barmaid style of prettiness, threw herself into the high-backed chair, covering the needlework with her ridiculous flounces, and added, "'Silence gives consent. Who is it, Mr. Devine? Tell us all about her. I am sure she has a story.' Poor little Mildred, sitting there, smiling, serene in her confidence that her every word charmed me sitting there with her rather pinched waist her rather tight boots her rather vulgar voice sitting in the chair where my dear lady had sat when she told me her story i could not bear it don't sit there i said it's not comfortable but the girl would not be warned with a laugh that set every nerve in my body vibrating with annoyance she said, "'Oh, dear, mustn't I even sit in the same chair as your black velvet woman?' I looked at the chair in the picture. It was the same, and in her chair Mildred was sitting. Then a horrible sense of the reality of Mildred came upon me. Was all this a reality after all? But for fortunate chance might Mildred have occupied not only her chair, but her place in my life?' I rose. "'I hope you won't think me very rude,' I said, "'but I am obliged to go out.' I forget what appointment I alleged. The lie came readily enough. I faced Mildred's pouts, with the hope that she and her mother would not wait dinner for me. I fled. In another minute I was safe, alone, under the chill, cloudy autumn sky, free to think, think, think of my dear lady.' I walked for hours along streets and squares. I lived over again and again every look, word, and hand-touch, every kiss. I was completely, unspeakably happy. Mildred was utterly forgotten. My lady of the ebony frame filled my heart and soul and spirit. As I heard eleven boom through the fog, I turned and went home. When I got to my street, I found a crowd surging through it, a strong red light filling the air. A house was on fire. Mine! I elbowed my way through the crowd. The picture of my lady, that at least I could save. As I sprang up the stairs, I saw, as in a dream, yes, all this was really dreamlike. I saw Mildred leaning out of the first-floor window, wringing her hands. "'Come back, sir!' cried a fireman. "'We'll get the young lady out right enough.' but my lady i went on up the stairs cracking smoking and as hot as hell to the room where her picture was strange to say i only felt that the picture was a thing we should like to look on through the long glad wedded life that was to be ours i never thought of it as being one with her as i reached the first floor i felt arms round my neck the smoke was too thick for me to distinguish features save me a voice whispered I clasped a figure in my arms, and, with a strange dis-ease, 
bore it down the shaking stairs and out into safety it was mildred i knew that directly i clasped her stand back cried the crowd everyone's safe cried a fireman the flames leaped from every window the sky grew redder and redder i sprang from the hands that would have held me i leapt up the stairs i crawled up the stairs suddenly the whole horror of the situation came on me as long as my picture remains in the ebony frame what if picture and frame perished together i fought with the fire and with my own choking inability to fight with it i pushed on i must save my picture i reached the drawing-room as i sprang in i saw my lady i swear it through the smoke and the flames hold out her arms to me to me who came too late to save her and to save my own life's joy i never saw her again before i could reach her or cry out to her i felt the floor yield beneath my feet and i fell into the fiery hell below how did they save me what does that matter they saved me somehow curse them every stick of my aunt's furniture was destroyed my friends pointed out that as the furniture was heavily insured the carelessness of a nightly studious housemaid had done me no harm no harm that was how i won and lost my only love i deny with all my soul in the denial that it was a dream there are no such dreams dreams of longing and pain there are in plenty but dreams of complete of unspeakable happiness ah no it is the rest of life that is the dream but if i think that why have i married mildred and grown stout and dull and prosperous i tell you it is all this that is the dream my dear lady only is the reality and what does it matter what one does in a dream end of the ebony frame chapter two of grim tales by edith nesbit this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by peter yearsley grim tales by e nesbit chapter two john charrington's wedding no one ever thought that may forster would marry john charrington but he thought differently and things which john charrington intended had a queer way of coming to pass he asked her to marry him before he went up to oxford she laughed and refused him he asked her again next time he came home again she laughed tossed her dainty blonde head and again refused a third time he asked her she said it was becoming a confirmed bad habit and laughed at him more than ever john was not the only man who wanted to marry her she was the belle of our village coterie and we were all in love with her more or less it was a sort of fashion like heliotrope ties or inverness capes therefore we were as much annoyed as surprised when john charrington walked into our little local club we held it in a loft over the saddlers i remember and invited us all to his wedding your wedding you don't mean it who's the happy fair when's it to be john charrington filled his pipe and lighted it before he replied 
then he said i'm sorry to deprive you fellows of your only joke but miss forster and i are to be married in september you don't mean it he's got the mitten again and it's turned his head no i said rising i see it's true lend me a pistol someone or a first-class fare to the other end of nowhere charrington has bewitched the only pretty girl in our twenty-mile radius was it mesmerism or a love potion jack neither sir but a gift you'll never have perseverance and the best luck a man ever had in this world there was something in his voice that silenced me and all chaff of the other fellows failed to draw him further the queer thing about it was that when we congratulated miss forster she blushed and smiled and dimpled for all the world as though she were in love with him and had been in love with him all the time upon my word i think she had women are strange creatures we were all asked to the wedding in brixham everyone who was anybody knew everybody else who was anyone my sisters were i truly believe more interested in the trousseau than the bride herself and i was to be best man the coming marriage was much canvassed at afternoon tea-tables and at our little club over the saddlers and the question was always asked does she care for him i used to ask that question myself in the early days of their engagement but after a certain evening in august i never asked it again i was coming home from the club through the churchyard our church is on a time-grown hill and the turf about it is so thick and soft that one's footsteps are noiseless i made no sound as i vaulted the low lichened wall and threaded my way between the tombstones it was at the same instant that i heard john charrington's voice and saw her may was sitting on a low flat gravestone her face turned towards the full splendour of the western sun its expression ended at once and for ever any question of love for him it was transfigured to a beauty i should not have believed possible even to that beautiful little face john lay at her feet and it was his voice that broke the stillness of the golden august evening my dear my dear i believe i should come back from the dead if you wanted me i coughed at once to indicate my presence and passed on into the shadow fully enlightened the wedding was to be early in september two days before i had to run up to town on business the train was late of course for we are on the southeastern and as i stood grumbling with my watch in my hand whom should i see but john charrington and may forster they were walking up and down the unfrequented end of the platform arm in arm looking into each other's eyes careless of the sympathetic interest of the porters of course i knew better than to hesitate a moment before burying myself in the booking office and it was not till the train drew up at the platform that i obtrusively passed the pair with my gladstone and took the corner in a first-class smoking carriage i did this with as good an air of not seeing them as i could assume i pride myself on my discretion but if john were travelling alone i wanted his company i had it hello old man came his cheery voice as he swung his bag into my carriage here's luck i was expecting a dull journey where are you off to i asked discretion still bidding me turn my eyes away though i saw without looking that hers were red-rimmed 
to old Branbridge's, he answered, shutting the door and leaning out for a last word with his sweetheart. Oh, I wish you wouldn't go, John, she was saying in a low, earnest voice. I feel certain something will happen. Do you think I should let anything happen to keep me? And the day after tomorrow, our wedding day? Don't go, she answered with a pleading intensity which would have sent my Gladstone onto the platform and me after it. But she wasn't speaking to me. John Charrington was made differently. He rarely changed his opinions, never his resolutions. He only stroked the little ungloved hands that lay on the carriage door. I must, May. The old boy's been awfully good to me. And now he's dying. I must go and see him, but I shall come home in time for... The rest of the parting was lost in a whisper, and in the rattling lurch of the starting train. "'You're sure to come,' she spoke as the train moved. "'Nothing shall keep me,' he answered, and we steamed out. After he had seen the last of the little figure on the platform, he leaned back in his corner and kept silence for a minute. When he spoke it was to explain to me that his godfather, whose heir he was, lay dying at Pease Marsh Place, some fifty miles away, and had sent for John, and John had felt bound to go. "'I shall be surely back to-morrow,' he said, or if not the day after. In heaps of time. Thank heaven one hasn't to get up in the middle of the night to get married nowadays. "'And suppose Mr. Brambridge dies?' "'Alive or dead, I mean to be married on Thursday,' John answered, lighting a cigar and unfolding the times. At Peasmarsh Station we said good-bye, and he got out, and I saw him ride off. I went on to London, where I stayed the night. When I got home the next afternoon, a very wet one, by the way, my sister greeted me with, "'Where's Mr. Charrington?' "'Goodness knows,' I answered testily. Every man since Cain has resented that kind of question. "'I thought you might have heard from him,' she went on, "'as you're to give him away to-morrow.' "'Isn't he back?' I asked, for I had confidently expected to find him at home. "'No, Geoffrey. My sister, Fanny, always had a way of jumping to conclusions, especially such conclusions as were least favourable to her fellow-creatures. He has not returned, and what is more, you may depend upon it, he won't. You mock my words, there'll be no wedding to-morrow.' "'My sister, Fanny, has a power of annoying me, which no other human being possesses.' "'You mark my words,' I retorted with asperity. "'You had better give up making such a thundering idiot of yourself. "'There'll be more wedding to-morrow than ever you'll take the first part in.' "'A prophecy which, by the way, came true. "'But, though I could snarl confidently to my sister, "'I did not feel so comfortable, "'when late that night I, standing on the doorstep of John's house, "'heard that he had not returned.' I went home gloomily through the rain. Next morning brought a brilliant blue sky, gold sun, and all such softness of air and beauty of cloud as go to make up a perfect day. I woke with a vague feeling of having gone to bed anxious, and of being rather averse to facing that anxiety in the light of full wakefulness. But with my shaving-water came a note from John which relieved my mind, and sent me up to the Forsters with a light heart. May was in the garden. I saw her blue gown through the hollyhocks, as the lodge gates swung to behind me. So I did not go up to the house, but turned aside down the turfed path. 
he's written to you too she said without preliminary greeting when i reached her side yes i'm to meet him at the station at three and come straight on to the church her face looked pale but there was a brightness in her eyes and a tender quiver about the mouth that spoke of renewed happiness mr branbridge begged him so to stay another night that he had not the heart to refuse she went on he is so kind but i wish he hadn't stayed i was at the station at half-past two i felt rather annoyed with john it seemed a sort of slight to the beautiful girl who loved him that he should come as it were out of breath and with the dust of travel upon him to take her hand which some of us would have given the best years of our lives to take but when the three o'clock train glided in and glided out again having brought no passengers to our little station i was more than annoyed there was no other train for thirty-five minutes i calculated that with much hurry we might just get to the church in time for the ceremony but oh what a fool to miss that first train what other man could have done it that thirty-five minutes seemed a year as i wandered round the station reading the advertisements and the time-tables and the company's by-laws and getting more and more angry with john charrington this confidence in his own power of getting everything he wanted the minute he wanted it was leading him too far i hate waiting everyone does but i believe i hate it more than anyone else the three thirty-five was late of course i ground my pipe between my teeth and stamped with impatience as i watched the signals click the signal went down five minutes later i flung myself into the carriage that i had brought for john drive to the church i said as someone shut the door mr charrington hasn't come by this train anxiety now replaced anger what had become of the man could he have been taken suddenly ill i had never known him have a day's illness in his life and even so he might have telegraphed some awful accident must have happened to him the thought that he had played her false never no not for a moment entered my head yes something terrible had happened to him and on me lay the task of telling his bride i almost wished the carriage would upset and break my head so that someone else might tell her not i who but that's nothing to do with his story it was five minutes to four as we drew up at the churchyard gate a double row of eager onlookers lined the path from lichgate to porch i sprang from the carriage and passed up between them our gardener had a good front place near the door i stopped are they waiting still biles i asked simply to gain time for of course i knew they were by the waiting crowd's attentive attitude waiting sir no no sir why it must be over by now over then mr charrington's come to the minute sir must have missed you somehow and i say sir lowering his voice i never see mr john the least bit so afore but my opinion is he's been drinking pretty free his clothes was all dusty and his face like a sheet i tell you i didn't like the looks of him at all and the folks inside are saying all sorts of things you'll see something's gone very wrong with mr john and he's tried liquor he looked like a ghost and in he went with his eyes straight before him with never a look or a word for none of us him that was always such a gentleman i had never heard biles make so long a speech the crowd in the churchyard were talking in whispers and getting ready rice and slippers to throw at the bride and bridegroom the ringers were ready with their hands on the ropes to ring out the merry peal as the bride and bridegroom should come out 
a murmur from the church announced them out they came biles was right john charrington did not look himself there was dust on his coat his hair was disarranged he seemed to have been in some row for there was a black mark above his eyebrow he was deathly pale but his pallor was not greater than that of the bride who might have been carved in ivory dress veil orange blossoms face and all as they passed out the ringers stopped there were six of them and then on the ears expecting the gay wedding peal came the slow tolling of the passing bell a thrill of horror at so foolish a jest from the ringers passed through us all but the ringers themselves dropped the ropes and fled like rabbits out into the sunlight the bride shuddered and grey shadows came about her mouth but the bridegroom led her on down the path where the people stood with the handfuls of rice but the handfuls were never thrown and the wedding bells never rang in vain the ringers were urged to remedy their mistake they protested with many whispered expletives that they would see themselves further first in a hush like the hush in the chamber of death the bridal pair passed into their carriage and its door slammed behind them then the tongues were loosed a babel of anger wonder conjecture from the guests and the spectators if i had seen his condition sir said old forster to me as we drove off i would have stretched him on the floor of the church sir by heaven i would before i'd have let him marry my daughter then he put his head out of the window drive like hell he cried to the coachman don't spare the horses he was obeyed we passed the bride's carriage i forbore to look at it and old forster turned his head away and swore we reached home before it we stood in the hall doorway in the blazing afternoon sun and in about half a minute we heard wheels crunching the gravel when the carriage stopped in front of the steps old forster and i ran down great heaven the carriage is empty and yet i had the door open in a minute and this is what i saw no sign of john charrington and of may his wife only a huddled heap of white satin lying half on the floor of the carriage and half on the seat i drove straight here sir said the coachman as the bride's father lifted her out and i'll swear no one got out of the carriage we carried her into the house in her bridal dress and drew back her veil i saw her face shall i ever forget it white white and drawn with agony and horror bearing such a look of terror as i have never seen since except in dreams and her hair her radiant blonde hair i tell you it was white like snow as we stood her father and i half mad with the horror and mystery of it a boy came up the avenue a telegraph boy they brought the orange envelope to me i tore it open mr charrington was thrown from the dog-cart on his way to the station at half-past one killed on the spot and he was married to may forster in our parish church at half-past three in presence of half the parish i shall be married dead or alive what had passed in that carriage on the homeward drive no one knows no one will ever know oh may oh my dear before a week was over they laid her beside her husband in our little churchyard on the time-covered hill the churchyard where they had kept their love trysts thus was accomplished john charrington's wedding
The End of John Charrington's Wedding Chapter 3 of Grim Tales by Edith Nesbitt This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley Uncle Abraham's Romance No, my dear, my Uncle Abraham answered me. No, nothing romantic ever happened to me. Unless, but no, that wasn't romantic either. I was, to me, I being eighteen, romance was the world. My Uncle Abraham was old and lame. I followed the gaze of his faded eyes, and my own rested on a miniature that hung at his elbow-chair's right hand, a portrait of a woman whose loveliness even the miniature painter's art had been powerless to disguise, a woman with large lustrous eyes and perfect oval face. I rose to look at it. I had looked at it a hundred times. Often enough in my baby days I had asked, "'Who's that, uncle?' always receiving the same answer, a lady who died long ago, my dear. As I looked again at the picture, I asked, Was she like this? Who? Your, your romance. Uncle Abraham looked hard at me. Yes, he said at last, very, very like. I sat down on the floor by him. Won't you tell me about her? There's nothing to tell, he said. I think it was fancy, mostly, and folly, but it's the realest thing in my long life, my dear. A long pause. I kept silence. Hurry no man's cattle is a good motto, especially with old people. I remember, he said, in the dreamy tone, always promising so well to the ear that a story delighteth. I remember when I was a young man. I was very lonely indeed. I never had a sweetheart. I was always lame, my dear, from quite a boy. And the girls used to laugh at me. He sighed. Presently he went on. And so I got into the way of mooning off by myself in lonely places. And one of my favourite walks was up through our churchyard, which was set high on a hill in the middle of the marsh country. I liked that because I never met anyone there. It's all over, years ago. I was a silly lad, but I couldn't bear, of a summer evening, to hear a rustle and a whisper from the other side of the hedge, or maybe a kiss as I went by. Well, I used to go and sit all by myself in the churchyard, which was always sweet with time, and quite light, on account of its being so high, long after the marshes were dark. I used to watch the bats flitting about in the red light, and wonder why God didn't make everyone's legs straight and strong, and wicked follies like that. But by the time the light was gone, I had always worked it off, so to speak, and could go home quietly, and say my prayers without any bitterness. Well, one hot night in August, when I had watched the sunset fade, and the crescent moon grow golden, I was just stepping over the low stone wall of the churchyard, when I heard a rustle behind me. I turned round, expecting it to be a rabbit or a bird. It was a woman. He looked at the portrait. So did I. Yes, he said. That was her very face. I was a bit scared, and said something. I don't know what. 
and she laughed and said, Did I think she was a ghost? And I answered back, and I stayed talking to her over the churchyard wall till it was quite dark, and the glowworms were out in the wet grass all along the way home. Next night I saw her again, and the next night, and the next, always at twilight time, and if I passed any lovers leaning on the stiles in the marshes, it was nothing to me now. Again my uncle paused. It's very long ago, he said slowly, and I'm an old man, but I know what youth means, and happiness, though I was always lame, and the girls used to laugh at me. I don't know how long it went on. You don't measure time in dreams. But at last your grandfather said I looked as if I had one foot in the grave, and he would be sending me to stay with our kin at Bath and take the waters. I had to go. I could not tell my father why I would rather had died than go. What was her name, uncle? I asked. She never would tell me her name, and why should she? I had names enough in my heart to call her by. Marriage? My dear, even then I knew marriage was not for me. But I met her, night after night, always in our churchyard where the yew-trees were, and the lichened gravestones. It was there we always met and always parted. The last time was the night before I went away. She was very sad, and dearer than life itself, and she said, if you come back before the new moon, I shall meet you here, just as usual. But if the new moon shines on this grave, and you are not here, you will never see me again any more. She laid her hand on the yellow lichened tomb against which we had been leaning. It was an old weather-worn stone, and bore on it the inscription, Susanna King's North, Ob 1713. I shall be here, I said. I mean it, she said, with deep and sudden seriousness. It is no fancy. You will be here when the new moon shines. I promised, and after a while we parted. I had been with my kinsfolk at Bath nearly a month. I was to go home on the next day, when, turning over a case in the parlour, I came upon that miniature. I could not speak for a minute. At last I said, with dry tongue, and heart beating to the tune of heaven and hell. Who is this? That, said my aunt. Oh, she was betrothed to one of our family many years ago, but she died before the wedding. They say she was a bit of a witch. A handsome one, wasn't she? I looked again at the face, the lips, the eyes of my dear and lovely love, whom I was to meet tomorrow night when the new moon shone on that tomb in our churchyard. Did you say she was dead? I asked and I hardly knew my own voice. Years and years ago, her name's on the back, and her date. I took the portrait from its faded red velvet bed, and read on the back, Susanna, King's North, Ob, 1713. That was in 1813. My uncle stopped short. What happened? I asked breathlessly. I believe I had a fit. My uncle answered slowly. At any rate, I was very ill. And you missed the new moon on the grave? I missed the new moon on the grave. And you never saw her again? I never saw her again. But, uncle, do you really believe... Can the dead... Was she... Did you... 
my uncle took out his pipe and filled it it's a long time ago he said a many many years old men's tales my dear old men's tales don't you take any notice of them he lighted the pipe puffed silently a moment or two and then added but i know what youth means and happiness though i was lame and the girls used to laugh at me the end of chapter three chapter four of grim tales by edith nesbitt this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by peter yearsley the mystery of the semi-detached he was waiting for her he had been waiting an hour and a half in a dusty suburban lane with a row of big elms on one side and some eligible building sites on the other and far away to the southwest the twinkling yellow lights of the crystal palace it was not quite like a country lane for it had a pavement and lamp-posts but it was not a bad place for a meeting all the same and farther up towards the cemetery it was really quite rural and almost pretty especially in twilight but twilight had long deepened into night and still he waited he loved her and he was engaged to be married to her with the complete disapproval of every reasonable person who had been consulted and this half clandestine meeting was to-night to take the place of the grudgingly sanctioned weekly interview because a certain rich uncle was visiting at her house and her mother was not the woman to acknowledge to a moneyed uncle who might go off any day a match so deeply ineligible as hers with him so he waited for her and the chill of an unusually severe may evening entered into his bones the policeman passed him with but a surly response to his good-night the bicyclists went by him like grey ghosts with fog-horns and it was nearly ten o'clock and she had not come he shrugged his shoulders and turned towards his lodgings his road led him by her house desirable commodious semi-detached and he walked slowly as he neared it she might even now be coming out but she was not there was no sign of movement about the house no sign of life no lights even in the windows and her people were not early people he paused by the gate wondering then he noticed that the front door was open wide open and the street lamp shone a little way into the dark hall there was something about all this that did not please him that scared him a little indeed the house had a gloomy and deserted air it was obviously impossible that it harboured a rich uncle the old man must have left early in which case he walked up the path of patent glazed tiles and listened no sign of life he passed into the hall there was no light anywhere where was everybody and why was the front door open there was no one in the drawing-room the dining-room and the study nine feet by seven were equally blank everyone was out evidently but the unpleasant sense that he was perhaps not 
the first casual visitor to walk through that open door, impelled him to look through the house before he went away and closed it after him. So he went upstairs, and at the door of the first bedroom he came to, he struck a wax match, as he had done in the sitting-rooms. Even as he did so, he felt that he was not alone, and he was prepared to see something, but for what he saw he was not prepared. For what he saw lay on the bed, in a white, loose gown, and it was his sweetheart, and its throat was cut from ear to ear. He doesn't know what happened then, nor how he got downstairs and into the street, but he got out somehow, and the policeman found him in a fit, under the lamp-post at the corner of the street. He couldn't speak when they picked him up, and he passed the night in the police cells, because the policeman had seen plenty of drunken men before, but never one in a fit. The next morning he was better, though still very white and shaky, but the tale he told the magistrate was convincing and they sent a couple of constables with him to her house. There was no crowd about it, as he had fancied there would be, and the blinds were not down. As he stood, dazed, in front of the door, it opened, and she came out. He held on to the door-post for support. "'She's all right, you see,' said the constable who had found him under the lamp. "'I told you you was drunk, but you would know best.' When he was alone with her, he told her— not all, for that would not bear telling, but how he had come into the commodious semi-detached, and how he had found the door open and the lights out, and that he had been into that long back room facing the stairs, and had seen something, in even trying to hint at which, he turned sick and broke down, and had to have brandy given him. "'But, my dearest,' she said, I dare say the house was dark, for we were all at the Crystal Palace with my uncle, and no doubt the door was open, for the maids will run out if they're left. But you could not have been in that room, because I locked it when I came away, and the key was in my pocket. I dressed in a hurry, and I left all my odds and ends lying about. I know, he said. I saw a green scarf on a chair, and some long brown gloves, and a lot of hairpins and ribbons, and a prayer-book and a lace handkerchief on the dressing-table. Why, I even noticed the almanac on the mantelpiece, October the twenty-first. At least, it couldn't be that, because this is May. And yet it was. Your almanac is at October the twenty-first, isn't it? No, of course it isn't, she said, smiling rather anxiously. But all the other things were just as you say. You must have had a dream, or a vision, or something. He was a very ordinary, commonplace city young man, and he didn't believe in visions. But he never rested day or night till he got his sweetheart and her mother away from that commodious semi-detached, and settled them in a quite distant suburb. In the course of the removal he incidentally married her, and the mother went on living with them. His nerves must have been a good bit shaken because he was very queer for a long time, and was always inquiring if anyone had taken the desirable semi-detached, and when an old stockbroker with a family took it, he went the length of calling on the old gentleman, and imploring him by all that he held dear, not to live in that fatal house. "'Why?' said the stockbroker, not unnaturally, 
and then he got so vague and confused between trying to tell why and trying not to tell why that the stockbroker showed him out and thanked his god he was not such a fool as to allow a lunatic to stand in the way of his taking that really remarkably cheap and desirable semi-detached residence now the curious and quite inexplicable part of this story is that when she came down to breakfast on the morning of the twenty-second of october she found him looking like death with the morning paper in his hand he caught hers he couldn't speak and pointed to the paper and there she read that on the night of the twenty-first a young lady the stockbroker's daughter had been found with her throat cut from ear to ear on the bed in the long back bedroom facing the stairs of that desirable semi-detached end of chapter four Part One of Chapter Five of Grim Tales by Edith Nesbit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. From the Dead, Part One. But true or not true, your brother is a scoundrel. No man, no decent man, tells such things. He did not tell me. How dare you suppose it? I found the letter in his desk and she being my friend and you being her lover i never thought there could be any harm in my reading her letter to my brother give me back the letter i was a fool to tell you ida helmont held out her hand for the letter not yet i said and i went to the window the dull red of a london sunset burned on the paper as i read in the quaint dainty handwriting i knew so well and had kissed so often dear i do i do love you but it's impossible i must marry arthur my honour is engaged if he would only set me free but he never will he loves me so foolishly but as for me it is you i love body soul and spirit there is no one in my heart but you i think of you all day and dream of you all night and we must part and that is the way of the world. Goodbye. Yours, 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 Elvira. I had seen the handwriting indeed often enough, but the passion written there was new to me. That I had not seen. I turned from the window wearily. My sitting-room looked strange to me. There were my books, my reading-lamp, my untasted dinner still on the table, as I had left it when I rose to dissemble my surprise at Ida Helmont's visit. Ida Helmont, who now sat in my easy-chair, looking at me quietly. Well, do you give me no thanks? You put a knife in my heart, and then ask for thanks. Pardon me, she said, throwing up her chin. I have done nothing but show you the truth. For that one should expect no gratitude. May I ask, out of mere curiosity, what you intend to do your brother will tell you she rose suddenly pale to the lips you will not tell my brother she began that you have read his private letters certainly not she came towards me her gold hair flaming in the sunset light why are you so angry with me she said 
be reasonable what else could i do i don't know would it have been right not to tell you i don't know i only know that you've put the sun out and i haven't got used to the dark yet believe me she said coming still nearer to me and laying her hands in the lightest light touch on my shoulders believe me she never loved you there was a softness in her tone that irritated and stimulated me i moved gently back and her hands fell by her sides i beg your pardon i said i have behaved very badly you were quite right to come and i am not ungrateful will you post a letter for me i sat down and wrote i give you back your freedom the only gift of mine that can please you now arthur i held the sheet out to miss helmont and when she had glanced at it i sealed stamped and addressed it good-bye i said then and gave her the letter as the door closed behind her i sank into my chair and i am not ashamed to say that i cried like a child or a fool over my lost plaything the little dark-haired woman who loved someone else with body soul and spirit i did not hear the door open or any foot on the floor and therefore i started when a voice behind me said are you so very unhappy oh arthur don't think i am not sorry for you i don't want anyone to be sorry for me miss helmont i said she was silent a moment then with a quick sudden gentle movement she leaned down and kissed my forehead and i heard the door softly close then i knew that the beautiful miss helmont loved me at first that thought only fleeted by a light cloud against a grey sky but the next day reason woke and said was miss helmont speaking the truth was it possible that i determined to see elvira to know from her own lips whether by happy fortune this blow came not from her but from a woman in whom love might have killed honesty i walked from hampstead to gower street as i trod its long length i saw a figure in pink come out of one of the houses it was elvira she walked in front of me to the corner of store street there she met oscar helmont they turned and met me face to face and i saw all i needed to see they loved each other ida helmont had spoken the truth i bowed and passed on before six months were gone they were married and before a year was over i had married ida helmont what did it i don't know whether it was remorse for having even for half a day dreamed that she could be so base as to forge a lie to gain a lover or whether it was her beauty or the sweet flattery of the preference of a woman who had half her acquaintances at her feet i don't know anyhow my thoughts turned to her as to their natural home my heart too took that road and before very long i loved her as i had never loved elvire let no one doubt that i loved her as i shall never love again please god there never was any one like her she was brave and beautiful witty and wise and beyond all measure adorable she was the only woman in the world 
there was a frankness a largeness of heart about her that made all other women seem small and contemptible she loved me and i worshipped her i married her i stayed with her for three golden weeks and then i left her why because she told me the truth it was one night late we had sat all the evening in the veranda of our seaside lodging watching the moonlight on the water and listening to the soft sound of the sea on the sand i have never been so happy i never shall be happy any more i hope heart's heart she said leaning her gold head against my shoulder how much do you love me how much yes how much i want to know what place it is i hold in your heart am i more to you than anyone else my love more than yourself more than my life i believe you she said then she drew a long breath and took my hands in hers it can make no difference nothing in heaven or earth can come between us now nothing i said but sweet my wife what is it for she was deathly pale i must tell you she said i cannot hide anything now from you because i am yours body soul and spirit the phrase was an echo that stung me the moonlight shone on her gold hair her warm soft gold hair and on her pale face arthur she said you remember my coming to you at hampstead with that letter yes my sweet and i remember how you arthur she spoke fast and low arthur that letter was a forgery she never wrote it i she stopped for i had risen and flung her hands from me and stood looking at her god help me i thought it was anger at the lie i felt i know now it was only wounded vanity that smarted in me that i should have been tricked that i should have been deceived that i should have been led on to make a fool of myself that i should have married the woman who had befooled me at that moment she was no longer the wife i adored she was only a woman who had forged a letter and tricked me into marrying her i spoke i denounced her i said i would never speak to her again i felt it was rather creditable in me to be so angry i said i would have no more to do with a liar and forger i don't know whether i expected her to creep to my knees and implore forgiveness i think i had some vague idea that i could by and by consent with dignity to forgive and forget i did not mean what i said no no i did not mean a word of it while i was saying it i was longing for her to weep and fall at my feet that i might raise her and hold her in my arms again but she did not fall at my feet she stood quietly looking at me arthur she said as i paused for breath let me explain she i there is nothing to explain i said hotly still with that foolish sense of there being something rather noble in my indignation as one feels when one calls oneself a miserable sinner you are a liar and a forger and that is enough for me i will never speak to you again you have wrecked my life do you mean that she said interrupting me and leaning forward to look at me tears lay on her cheeks but she was not crying now i hesitated 
I longed to take her in my arms and say, Lay your head here, my darling, and cry here, and know how I love you. But instead I kept silence. Do you mean it? she persisted. Then she put her hand on my arm. I longed to clasp it and draw her to me. Instead I shook it off and said, Mean it? Yes, of course I mean it. Don't touch me, please. You have ruined my life. She turned away without a word, went into our room, and shut the door. I longed to follow her, to tell her that if there was anything to forgive, I forgave it. Instead, I went out on the beach and walked away under the cliffs. The moonlight and the solitude, however, presently brought me to a better mind. Whatever she had done had been done for love of me. I knew that. I would go home and tell her so, tell her that whatever she had done she was my dearest life, my heart's one treasure. True, my ideal of her was shattered, but even as she was, what was the whole world of women compared to her? I hurried back, but in my resentment and evil temper I had walked far, and the way back was very long. I had been parted from her for three hours by the time I opened the door of the little house where we lodged. The house was dark and very still. I slipped off my shoes and crept up the narrow stairs, and opened the door of our room quite softly. Perhaps she would have cried herself to sleep, and I would lean over her and waken her with my kisses, and beg her to forgive me. Yes, it had come to that now. I went into the room. I went towards the bed. She was not there. She was not in the room, as one glance showed me. She was not in the house, as I knew in two minutes. When I had wasted a priceless hour in searching the town for her, I found a note on the dressing-table. Goodbye. Make the best of what is left of your life. I will spoil it no more. She was gone, utterly gone. I rushed to town by the earliest morning train, only to find that her people knew nothing of her. Advertisement failed. Only a tramp said he had met a white lady on the cliff, and a fisherman brought me a handkerchief marked with her name that he had found on the beach. I searched the country far and wide, but I had to go back to London at last, and the months went by. I won't say much about those months, because even the memory of that suffering turns me faint and sick at heart. The police and detectives and the press failed me utterly. Her friends could not help me, and were, moreover, wildly indignant with me, especially her brother, now living very happily with my first love. I don't know how I got through those long weeks and months. I tried to write. I tried to read. I tried to live the life of a reasonable human being. But it was impossible. I could not endure the companionship of my kind. Day and night I almost saw her face, almost heard her voice. I took long walks in the country, and her figure was always just round the next turn of the road, in the next glade of the wood. But I never quite saw her, never quite heard her. I believe I was not altogether sane at that time. At last, one morning, as I was setting out for one of those long walks that had no goal but weariness, I met a telegraph boy and took the red envelope from his hand. 
On the pink paper inside was written, Come to me at once. I am dying. You must come. Ida. Appinshaw Farm, Mellor, Derbyshire. There was a train at twelve to Marple, the nearest station. I took it. I tell you there are some things that cannot be written about. My life for those long months was one of them. That journey was another. What had her life been for those months? That question troubled me, as one is troubled in every nerve at the sight of a surgical operation or a wound inflicted on a being dear to one. But the overmastering sensation was joy, intense, unspeakable joy. She was alive. I should see her again. I took out the telegram and looked at it. I am dying. I simply did not believe it. She could not die till she had seen me. And if she had lived all those months without me, she could live now, when I was with her again, when she knew of the hell I had endured apart from her, and the heaven of our meeting. She must live. I would not let her die. There was a long drive over bleak hills, dark, jolting, infinitely wearisome. At last we stopped before a long, low building, where one or two lights gleamed faintly. I sprang out. The door opened. A blaze of light made me blink and draw back. A woman was standing in the doorway. "'Art thee, Arthur Marsh?' she said. "'Yes.' "'Then thou'rt o'er late. She's dead.' End of Part 1 of From the Dead Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.